children ages three and four in kindergarten through fifth grade are invited to attend Children's Church at this time. Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. Thanks so much for making it to church today. And if you have your Bibles, would you open up to the book of Genesis chapter 9, please? Uh, Grateful for those of you that are joining us online. Thanks for your wisdom and discernment on knowing whether or not to get out in this weather. Um, But next Sunday's forecast is supposed to be incredible, so I look forward to seeing all of you back here in the house uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of those out of the pew rack in front of you so you can follow along with us. Uh, A couple of years ago, I drove past Hingham High School and parked out in the middle of the front lawn, so to speak, was a car that had been seriously wrecked. And I knew as soon as I saw it what it was. Uh, It was a car that had been wrecked some years prior by a drunk driver. And then it was placed in front of the school as a warning to students. that This is what happens when you drink and you drive. Uh, And it was there for maybe a couple of weeks. Every day, students coming in, students going out of those front doors would see that car sitting there as a warning that there are consequences to that sort of behavior. And our passage that we're studying this morning in Genesis chapter 9 kind of serves the same purpose. It's a warning passage. It's a warning about the dangers of sin. We're going to learn from the sin of Noah, the sin of his son Ham, as well as blessings and curses that Noah gives to his sons. Why do you think it is important that we would be warned of sin? Why is it valuable to us that the Bible, on a regular basis as we read, holds sin in front of us and says, watch out? Warning here, this is danger to you. It's important for us to receive warnings for all kinds of things in life. Your car has a light on it that warns you if you don't have enough oil. That's an important light, right? Why is it important to be warned of low oil? Why is it important to be warned of the dangers of jumping out of a plane without a parachute? Why do you need to be warned that there's sharks in the water that have been spotted nearby when you're at the beach? All of these warnings help us avoid danger. They lead us in a path of health, wellness, life, goodness. Those warnings are there for our good and for our protection, and so it is with God's Word when it comes to sin. This passage is a little weird, but it is a grace of God to us to open our eyes to remind us what we live for, to remind us of the strength we have in Christ over our sin. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to wake you up to the destructive nature of the sin that's already present in your life. And the positive outcome of our time together should be deeper communion with Christ through confession and repentance. I want us to walk out of here this morning with souls refreshed, as we lean into Jesus once again. And so this passage gives us three warning signs regarding our sin. I want you to follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked 
and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. That's a weird story. You drove through a hurricane to come and hear this story this morning. Way to go. Uh, but though it's a little strange, it's not impossible for us to make sense of, and um, the glaring message of this brief story is of the dangers of sin in our lives. And so I want to show you from this passage three warning signs regarding our own sin. And the first warning sign is this. This passage tells us, be aware of your sinful inclinations. Uh, In Noah's actions at the beginning of this passage, we're warned, be aware of your own sinful inclinations. So some time has passed since Noah and his family have stepped off the ark up to this point in the story. It doesn't just happen, you know, one day they're off the ark, the next day he's harvesting his grapes. Uh, Time passes, enough time to plant the vineyard, to harvest the grapes, uh, to uh, ferment the juice, and then to take advantage of it. Don't know how long, but it's some time. And verse 21 tells us that Noah drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside of his tent. Now, you might remember last week, actually the previous two weeks, when we've talked about Noah's story, uh, we've highlighted parallels between Adam and Noah. And there's many, many more than what we've covered. But even in this story, there's multiple parallels between Adam and Noah. For example, Adam worked the garden, but Noah works the soil. Adam sinned with fruit. Noah also sins with fruit. Adam's sin led to nakedness and shame, and so Noah's sin also leads to nakedness and shame. I mean, here we are after the flood. It's supposed to be great. Rainbow in the sky. Things are good. Sin has been judged. The earth has been wiped clean of this sinfulness. It's a new creation. It's a new day, a new start, new relationships, a new promise from God that Noah and his family carry. But you know what hasn't changed? The human heart. It's the same old human heart that steps off of that ark into the new creation. Noah's sinful choices verify what God said back in chapter 8, verse 21. We read it last week. The inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And there's something about Noah's sin that might be a little surprising to us considering his resume of righteousness. You'll remember that at one time he's the only righteous man on the face of the earth. And his righteousness came through his faith in God, not just by his deeds, but by his faith in God. He obeyed the word of the Lord. He endured a year in the ark. He came off the ark and offered a sacrifice to God that pleased him. He received a promise from God, a covenant that God would never again destroy the earth in a flood. Even though Noah had experienced all of this, still he is conquered by his own sin. 
this helpless drunk uncovered in his tent is as significant a warning to us as the flood itself. Noah needed help beyond himself. Noah needed the grace of God. So do we. Noah's sin is written here in order to make us wise about our own sin. His sad example demonstrates that people in their prime, even people in their old age, are sometimes overtaken by sins that they previously had put off. A writer named Kent Hughes talked about it this way. He wrote, when all the world was against Noah, he faced scorn and violence straight up. But in his vineyard, among his own who needed no proof of his virtue, he relaxed. He's brave in front of a world that mocks him for building a boat in the middle of nowhere. But when it's just him with his family, he lives a different way. It's terrifyingly easy to play the saint when we're around others, yet live a shameful life in private. Here's what I think we find throughout our lives as we age, as we mature, is that the tempter doesn't stop his work. He merely shifts his tactics. And I think there's a particular word of concern here for people who are very mature in their faith and people who are advanced in age. If Noah succumbed to his sin at over 600 years old, then I want to make sure and watch my own soul in every year of my life. Sin doesn't have to be spectacular to be devastating. An angry spirit, critical words, self-centeredness, slander. Sin always brings shame, and we always need grace. We have to be aware of our own sinful inclinations. So our first warning is to be aware of our sinful inclinations. Noah helps us understand this. There's another warning about sin in the story, and the warning is this. Be aware of your sinful choices. So I have a bend towards sin. One, I have these inclinations. Two, I've got opportunities to sin right in front of me. I've got to make a right choice in the moment. See, the conflict in this story arises from the responses of Noah's sons to their father's condition. Ham, the youngest, made a shameful choice. Shem and Japheth made the honorable choice. So verse 22 talks to us about Ham. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Our first response might be, what's the big deal? He just walks into the tent accidentally. He doesn't know his father's uncovered in the tent. He just walks in and sees it. And then we don't know what he said to his brothers. Maybe he was like, hey, guys, dad needs some help. But now he's held accountable for things that he didn't do or he faces these challenges. It just seems not fair. Here's the challenge for you and I as, as modern Bible readers. We will often import 21st century values into a story where they are totally foreign and don't belong. And so we, we will automatically begin to defend Ham when we construct our own sense of what happened without letting the story tell the story and be the story, as if we understand what's happened better than Moses who gave us this account. And the fact is, I, I think uh, as American readers, if you born and raised here, lived in an American culture your whole life, we don't understand honor and shame culture in the same way that people from other countries might. So that's another particular challenge when we read this story 
uh, on its own. So what we have to do is we have to work to see this story through the eyes of ancient Israel and the values that colored their culture. So what's problematic in this story in terms of Ham's actions is, is not that he saw his father uncovered. That indeed just seems like an accident. How could he know? He just walks in and he sees. That's not shameful in and of itself. But it's his telling of his father's nakedness to his brothers that seems to be the problem. It's, I think if Ham had just come out of the tent and been like, hey guys, dad needs some help, this would not even be in the Bible. This is a nothing story. But what seems to have happened is that Ham leaves the tent and tries to get his brothers to come and rejoice in their father's shame. You're not going to believe what dad's done. Come look. What a fool. Look at this old man in here. Can't even control himself. How embarrassing. Come check this out, guys. I think that's the tone of his storytelling to his brothers. He's heaping shame on his father, dishonoring his father. Now, even still, that may not seem like such a big deal to you. You might think, well, that's kind of a small thing for him to receive this massive curse from Noah. But isn't that just how self-destruction begins? It's with small choices, little words. It's one burst of anger. It's a small fleeting glance by which we open our hearts to sin. The seemingly small sin is not innocent. It carries with it the same destructive potential and leads down the same dark path. Ham had a choice, and he chose to act sinfully at his father's expense. His brothers chose differently. Shem and Japheth chose to act honorably in this situation with their father. Look at what verse uh, 22 or verse 23 says. It says, Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders and walked backwards. They covered their father's wickedness. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father naked. So Shem and Japheth may not have realized this at the time, but they chose to make a God-like decision in the way they addressed this situation with their father. Uh, you remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, they became aware that they were naked. And what does God do? He gives them clothing made out of animal skins to cover their shame. Likewise, Shem and Japheth take a cloak and they provide it for their dad to cover his shame and his nakedness as well. So when you and I are confronted by an opportunity to sin, we have to make the God-honoring choice. That when our sin and our shame is covered by the blood of Christ, then we're free from the power of sin and the allure of sin. We can run in the direction of Christ and His grace and His holiness. But when we fail like Noah, or when we should fail like Ham, perhaps. It doesn't mean that we don't belong to Jesus. It means that we have a heavenly Father waiting on us to return home and find forgiveness and love again. Doesn't this story also teach us something about the way we should interact with people in our lives who are also enmeshed in sin? Shem and Japheth's actions towards their father 
It reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where Peter implores the early church, above all, maintain constant love for one another uh, because love covers a multitude of sins. So people we care for, people we love, fall deep into sin, and our response should be a response of love that leads them in repentance that leads them to a trust in Christ that their shame would be covered and that they would know the mercy and the goodness of God. We'll leave judgment and condemnation for someone else, but as far as it is for God's people, we respond to sin in the way of Christ. We love the person towards their restoration. So when sin comes your way, you have a choice. And this story compels us to choose the way of God in those moments. So our two warnings so far, beware of your sinful inclination. Second, beware of your sinful choices. The final warning is this, be aware of sin's success and defeat. Be aware of sin's success and defeat. So these next few verses that close out the story are really challenging, but they're not impossible. And I want to read them again to you so that the content is fresh on our mind as we walk through it. Look with me at verse, starting at verse 24. This is Noah's only speaking part in the Bible. And I want you to hear what Noah says. It says, When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Uh, there are various ways of understanding these verses, depending on what book you're reading, what Bible study you're doing, what preacher you're listening to. They may have a different take than what I'm going to give you this morning. I want to give you what makes sense to me uh, and what is, has been for me a really tricky passage to nail down uh, and to understand well. But the first thing we've got to recognize when it comes to making sense of this part of the story is that no human has the power to decree curses on another human. Noah does not have the power to create, invent, to give a curse on anyone. Curse and blessing is the domain of God alone, not man. And so what Noah does here is a, a, an emotional response in the moment uh, but it's not as if he has power given by God to decide who will be cursed and who will be blessed. If it is not in line with God's will, there will be no curse. If it's not in line with God's will, there will be no blessing. God is the determiner of these things. But something that might be helpful for us in understanding Noah's speech is if we can categorize it. And Noah's curse and blessings here fall into two distinct categories. First of all, it's prayer. It's invocation. And we see that through his repeated use of the word let. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. He's making an appeal to God in his language. He's asking God, let these things be. So on the one hand, Noah's speech is prayer. On the other hand, Noah's speech is prophecy. It is prophetic Oriole, oh, excuse me, oracle. Whenever he talks about his boys in this moment, he's not talking about the boys specifically. He's talking about their descendants. When he says, 
uh, let there be a curse on Canaan, he's not talking about his grandson specifically, but on those who will follow as descendants of Canaan, descendants of Ham. The same when he talks about blessings on Shem and on Japheth. He's talking about their descendants. Uh, He has an insight from the Lord into the future that these, the lines of his sons are going to go in these certain ways. The next chapter that follows, chapter 10, gives us the lineages of each of the boys. And it verifies what Noah speaks in this moment whenever he gives this prophetic oracle over his three sons. Now let's look first at Noah's curse of Ham. It's in verse 25, and he says this. He says, Canaan is cursed. He'll be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. Who's Canaan? Canaan is Ham's youngest son. Why does Noah curse Canaan instead of Ham himself? Well, as far as we know, Canaan hasn't done anything wrong in the story. It's possible that Noah detects in Canaan the same type of evil traits he's seen in his father. Whenever Ham acted for his father's shame, what we see in Ham is the heart of the serpent, the heart of the one who rejoiced at the fall in Adam and Eve. Ham's not a man who made just one mistake in his life. We're to see in Ham a lifestyle of sin and corruption. And so it's possible that Noah sees the, the heart of the father in the son Canaan. Uh, but remember also that when Noah speaks of Canaan, he's not just speaking of Canaan as an individual, but Canaan as a group of descendants, a people who will follow. And so when he speaks of a curse on Canaan, the original audience, Israel, reading this before they step into Canaan, the promised land, they get an explanation of why the people in that place are so horrifically wicked and vile. And they were. If you want to read a firsthand account of how horrific life was as a Canaanite, go to Leviticus chapter 18, and you will read graphic descriptions of all kinds of licentiousness, and child sacrifice. They're not just people who believe different or or doing their best to get by with their pagan gods. They are horrific, vile people making horrible, terrifying choices every day. They are destroyed under their sin. They are under the curse of sin, and it corrupts every part of their society. In Leviticus chapter 18, God is pleading with His people Israel, do not take part in their culture. Do not live like them. Do not be like them. Don't adopt their ways. You're set apart to live in a different way. So it seems strange to us when we read Canaan gets the curse, but when we think of it in terms of a depiction of what is to come, what we find makes sense. This curse comes to fruition through the sinful actions and choices of Canaan's descendants. Having cursed Canaan, Noah then turns his attention to Shem in verse 26. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. So notice that Noah doesn't bless Shem directly, but he blesses Shem's God. And so by directing the blessing to God instead of Shem, Noah makes Shem the lesser one and he makes God the greater one. And as long as 
Shem and his people continue in their covenant relationship with God, they're going to walk in the blessing of God. Do you know who the people are that are the descendants of Shem? It's Israel. So again, Israel, sitting and hearing this story, reading this story, on the border of the promised land, they're reminded again of who they belong to and the blessing they carry as long as they live within their covenant relationship with God. Finally, Noah spoke of Japheth. In verse 27, he said, Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Okay, again, whenever he speaks of the boys by name, he's speaking of descendants, not them individually. And in chapter 10, we learn who Japheth's descendants are. And Japheth's descendants, in short, we'll talk about it more next week, but in short, his descendants are all other Gentile nations. Canaanites come from Canaan. Israel comes from Shem's line. All other Gentile nations come from Japheth. And so Noah prays this blessing over Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Japheth's descendants live with and enjoy the blessing of Shem. We might say it this way. Bring the Gentiles into the blessing you have given to your people Israel. That's the prayer. And so when does that happen? If this is prophecy... When do the people of Japheth enjoy the blessing of Shem? It's it's not in the Old Testament. There are a few places where Gentiles step into the covenant community, and that's beautiful. I think of Rahab, I think of Ruth. There's some incredible moments there. But that promise comes to fruition in full through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where Jesus tears down the dividing wall of hostility once and for all between Jew and Gentile and makes out of many one body. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Colossians 3.11, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And listen, here's how amazing and powerful the grace of God is. Not only would the descendants of Japheth share in Shem's blessing, but ultimately so too would the descendants of Canaan. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 19 envisioned a day when Ham's descendants would be reconciled to Shem's future children, Israel. So ultimately, that's a lot of information. You've done well to to take it in, but Ultimately, at just the most basic level, what, what does the blessing and the curse mean in this story? Well, the sons of Noah are representative of two groups of mankind. To one group, the line of Shem, there will be blessing. But to the others, the Canaanites, there will be a curse. And so right here we learn of this great dividing line between all people. There are those who are blessed in that their sins have been covered, and there are those who are cursed because their sins are uncovered. In the Canaanites, we see the success of sin. It's a sad success. It's successful in corrupting people and their societies, successful in destroying people and families. Those who choose to reject the way of blessing are bound to sin like slaves and will never know freedom. They will only know death. In the descendants of Shem, we see the defeat of sin. I want you to listen again to how Kent Hughes describes this 
He says, the unfolding of God's program of grace began with God's declaration to Adam and Eve. And it was then heralded by Noah and Abram and Moses and David and the prophets and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. All the promises from Adam to John the Baptist have been fulfilled in Christ. He's the ultimate covering for our sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are two groups of people, those who know blessing of Christ, those who experience the curse of sin. So what have we learned from this passage? It's a tricky story. We might just read it and breeze past it, but it serves as a warning sign to our sin. It warns us of, of our sinful inclinations, warns us of our sinful choices, as well as the success and defeat of sin embodied in two types of people, those who are uncovered by sin and those who are covered by Christ. And so then we could now just close our Bibles and say, well, that was weird, and then we go back to watching storm reports on TV. We can forget what we've seen and heard in these warnings today, and we can be just like so many teenagers who learn nothing from the real-life example of a crashed car set in front of their high school. We can be like that. But brother and sister, you, you have to know that if you don't address the sin in your life, you are headed towards disaster. So I want to encourage you, my fellow Christians, to do two things in light of this passage. First of all, take a magnifying glass to your life and name your sin. Identify your sin. It may not be a huge thing as we consider sin to be huge. You're not selling guns to terrorists or, or whatever the thing might be, selling black market beanie babies. I don't know what the big sin is. But still, our sin, though we might consider it small, has all the deadly potential of the worst poison. So to stop and examine your soul and take stock of your life before the Lord can be a life-saving endeavor, so to speak. The poison that abides in us looks like anger, pride, unforgiveness, indifference to human suffering, your love of self over others, your combativeness, your need to talk and not listen, the way you keep score, your hatred of those you call your enemies, or your failure to pray for them, or your failure to pray. And if by some chance you are struggling to see the sin in your life, ask a trusted Christian friend. Give them permission without consequence to say, here's where your holiness needs attention. Take that magnifying glass. Take God's Word. Apply it to your life. Identify your sin. And then second, having identified your sin, take it to Jesus in confession and repentance. I mean, how often have we played this game where we feel like if, if I just keep it covered up, God, God won't notice. He won't see. He's not going to pay it. If I just don't talk about it, it's not an issue. But He sees and He knows. And you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to be ashamed. Having studied these past couple of weeks of the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve and the nakedness and the shame of Noah, I've thought a lot about the cross where Jesus died naked. The sinless Son of God bore all the shame of our sin so that we would know His grace and His blessing. 
And so he calls us today to take our sin to him, the one who took our shame, and in return, enjoy his eternal blessing and grace as he restores us and refreshes us again. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? I want to talk to you for just a moment directly. You might have an objection to what I've said this morning. You might say, hey, how can you lump everyone just into two categories, those who are blessed and those who are cursed? That type of binary thinking definitely does not sound like Jesus. But actually, my friend, these are precisely the words of Jesus. I want you to hear Jesus speak for himself from Matthew chapter 25, he tells us this story about what the great judgment day is going to look like. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's Jesus himself, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he'll also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't take care of me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Sheep and goats, blessing and curse, two types of people, and Jesus is the key to it all. Friend, don't miss the blessing that Jesus has for you. He died in your place for your sin, and if you will turn from your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus, rely on Him, make Him Lord of your life, you'll be saved. And then one day, you'll stand before His eternal throne and the king will say to you, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us and its role this morning as a warning. But above and beyond that, in this warning is your beautiful grace. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for the grace of awareness of our sin and a call to lean into your goodness, your kindness and compassion once again. Thank you for your patience with us in our sin and our failure. Thank you for your grace that is mighty and powerful and restorative. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who may not be hearing the voice of Jesus these days and instead they are following the voice of the tempter. God, I pray that you would rescue them from this destruction. Lord, give them the courage to confront their sin with the cross of Christ and there to find peace and wholeness again. And I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, God, that, that they, would, they would believe your word 
so that by trusting in Christ, they would go from cursed to blessed, from dead and enslaved to sin to alive forevermore. Let this be the day that new life comes to them and you're glorified for your good work. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.